Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. The Black Arts Movement flourished in the Twin Cities in the 1970s. It was a time of reclaiming heritage and artistic lineages while also embracing new aesthetics. In Minneapolis, the African American Cultural Center was a fulcrum of the movement. Even though the center closed in the mid-1980s, its legacy lives on in many black artists and black art communities today. KFAI's Sheila Regan tells the story of the center and its impact. In the 1970s, the African American Cultural Center, also known as the Afro-American Cultural Center, or simply the Afro Center, was thriving. From South Minneapolis to downtown, to the last location near Augsburg College, the center was a hub for black arts. It existed between 1969 to the mid-1980s. It hosted classes and gallery exhibitions. It published books, pamphlets, and a newsletter called Vision for a Time, and hosted lectures, film screenings, and more. We had a dance studio that other people wanted to come and practice in because we had a full wall of mirrors and a beautifully wood floor. Artist Takumba Aiken is a prominent St. Paul-based artist known for his abstract paintings and public artworks. He was named a Guggenheim Fellow in 2022. Back in the early 1970s, he got involved in the African American Cultural Center. He remembers it as a place teeming with artists of all different varieties. I taught something called lithography, printing on stone, which was only done in college, but because I went to the College of Art and Design, I asked them if I could borrow some of the stones that weren't being used and recreated it at the African American Cultural Center. The Civil Rights era paved the way for the Black Power Movement and its counterpart, the Black Arts Movement across the country. The Black Arts Movement was how we started. Rather than focusing on creating art for a broader mainstream audience, the Black Arts Movement was an explosion of art, music, and literature created by and for the Black community. It was grounded in a new aesthetic that reflected the Black experience. I wanted to make sure that people knew that art didn't start in Europe. Pieces that were not just objects of desire, they were objects of necessity because they were in community objects, dinkris symbols or weaving. All of these things had more meanings than just how nice and colorful they were. Aiken recognized the lack of knowledge of black art when visiting the Minnesota Historical Society. He had asked to see photographs of black people in Minnesota. So then they said, what? I said, African-Americans, Minnesota, they said, well, um, I said, colored people in Minnesota? They said, oh, no, we know what you mean. We just don't have a category. I was like, wow. Between 1969 and 1985, the African-American Cultural Center, which changed its name to the African-American Museum of Art and History in its later years, held exhibitions, provided educational programming, and supported black artists in the region. The same, we did at least six or seven exhibitions a year. We started getting known nationally. I went to Festax in 77, and they said, you're from Minnesota? Do you know about the African American Culture Center? I'm like, yes, I do, but how? Oh, I'm from Philadelphia, I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm from, how did you guys do that? I mean, you're like in snow and ice, right? 
Like, not exactly. Well, sometimes. Through its history, the center was a meeting place for artists to converge, to create art, music, dance, and more. With partner organizations, they'd host different performances, and the center featured groundbreaking visual arts exhibitions, like one called African Retentions. And we had a back screen projector. We were able to project 10 foot by 10 foot space of images and all. And we did a show right there in the, where the dance floors were. Aitken curated the show with help from another artist who he met through the center, Say Two Jones. Today, they are both fixtures in the Twin Cities art scene and beyond. Jones is a multidisciplinary artist, making public works and environmental design in the Twin Cities and well-respected nationally. We met at African American Cultural Center on the stairwell. I heard his voice. I went down and I said, you must be Setu Jones. He said, you must be Takumba Aiken. The minute we met, we just separated ourselves from everybody and went and talked. You know, then we became roommates. I dedicated my art at that time to changing the world. And so I was creating work for posters, for rallies, and at the same time, the Afro-American Cultural Center was expanding. According to Jones, the center began as a cultural component of the Model Cities program. Now, there were so many of these programs that were created during the Johnsonian era that were set up as part of his war on poverty, as it was called. Minneapolis was one of 150 model city experiments set up across the country aimed at curbing poverty and revitalizing inner cities. In 1973, President Nixon greenlit a different federal program that helped pay for salaries for workers as part of a jobs training program. I was employed or hired by CETA, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act, first in Minneapolis, where I was hired as a potter. And I learned my ceramic skills at the Afro Center. The CETA funding made it possible for Jones to learn how to be a curator. I heard that there was a job opening for a curator. I applied for it. Dick Alfton took a photo of me on the first day I was there. I tried to conceal my fear, but it came out in the photograph, even behind a smile. I could barely spell curator, let alone know what a curator did. I kind of had a half of a sense and understanding of it. The Afro Center's first building was located in the Fifth Avenue Congregational Church in South Minneapolis. A fire in 1971 didn't completely raise the church, but it did destroy its fiberglass photography studio built by University of Minnesota architecture students and the guitar studio rigged up with headphones. The gallery didn't survive the fire either. Van Byers, the center's director, was quoted in the Star Tribune, there's such a need and it was going so well. The group moved temporarily to Bryant Junior High and raised money for a new space. With a boost from the Lund family of Lund's grocery store, they purchased a Masonic temple on 31st and 1st. And that place was amazing. The Afro Center would share the building with Sabathany Community Center, its fiscal sponsor before it became a nonprofit in 1975. It was this old brick building, four stories tall, had this grand old meeting room in it that was fantastic, had this hallway that 
wrapped around this performance space. And it was just always jumping. (laughs) There was always this energy. You would go from floor to floor to floor. That hallway was the exhibition space. So you could go from this performance space right into the exhibition space. We showed films there. It was something. The center's activities weren't confined only to its walls. Often it took a collaborative approach with other organizations, like the Minneapolis Institute of Art. There was this outreach program that happened at the time. Uh, And many of the staff folks for this Museum on Wheels, this big outreach thing at the Institute, were indigenous folks. One of the Museum on Wheels exhibitions took place in 1973, when the truck-filled gallery parked outside of the center. It contained a carved wood and polychrome door from the Ivory Coast. Also, three pieces circulated by the Smithsonian Institute, plus photographs silk-screened on panels showing more than 100 African objects. Sometimes the Afro Center would engage in a kind of guerrilla programming out in the streets. It was actually uh, marketing. Okay, we were beating the drums, calling people to come. We did shows at Martin Luther King Park, just on the mound and everything, and had a festival of arts there. Other things came after that powder horn. We, we were sort of like mavericks, you know, do it the first time and hopefully we catch on before somebody catches us. Aiken remembers a young Sharon Sales Belton, long before she was mayor, dancing in the street. I didn't know who she was exactly. I just knew I was playing kunga drums for her. Then I would just grab it and get out of the street before people wanted to run us over. Just in the crosswalk, people were like, well, why are you doing that? Because we want you to come to the African-American Culture Center. The Afro Center also collaborated with the West Bank Music Association and the Walker Arts Center as part of the Walker Arts Center's Choreographer's Evening. Jewelene Jackson was the first person to curate a black choreographer's evening at the Walker in 1977. I had stepped into Minnesota nice. It wasn't so nice. Jackson pushed back against the predominantly white institutions that made up the Twin Cities arts landscape. Because I had dropped into this this arts piece between elitism and racism and sexism and all those other isms, I said, I need to help this arena do better. Originally from the South, Jackson moved to Minnesota when she was a stewardess for Northwest Airlines. And all of the black stewardesses decided, okay, well, we all, they all at that point wanted to buy from Miss Black Minnesota. So I thought, okay, well, if they are, I might as well too. Because I, I entered and I said, well, I don't have any talent. And they said, well, we've got somebody, i.e. Ron Holbrook, Feast of the Circle Dancers, rest his soul as well. He was a master on the drum. He was a master choreographer. He was a master with technique. He said, well, I can work with you on something. But as a result of that, I thought, okay, I can do this. Jackson also learned the art of dance working with Gloria Taylor James and Flo Lyle, the sister of musician Bobby Lyle. Kathy Stevens also learned dance from Ron Holbrook and was part of a group that would tour to different community centers and churches around the city. And the people, you know, would appreciate the fact that, you know, here we are, we're coming, these little black kids come into our facility, whatever, to perform for us. Stevens went to school at Bryant Junior High at 38th and 3rd and would walk to the African American Cultural Center after school with her brother. They'd get a snack and take a class. 
For me, it just opened up the, you know, the world of dance. Stevens also remembers bringing her African dancing skills to a talent show at Bryant Junior High, where Prince also performed. I was in sixth grade. I think he was in eighth grade. Talented. I, I remember just talented. Yeah. The Afrocenter's space in the Masonic Temple on 31st was raised to make way for a mini mall. The city purchased the building from Sabathany, which was the center's fiscal sponsor initially. The mirrors and dance floors in the dance studio were sold. It was just terrible. They just really just decimated the, the center that could take care of everything and keep people thinking, but that was a problem. The Afro Center would move to downtown Minneapolis in 1976 and then to a space near Augsburg in the 1980s. And Augsburg gave us a church there. Unfortunately, the African American Cultural Center faced hurdles throughout its existence. A report conducted for the Council on Black Minnesotans cited a changing funding landscape as just one issue plaguing the organization. When the Model City's funding ended in 1974, the center had to scramble. They found success getting grants from foundations and corporate funders, but their size was a limitation. As a mid-sized organization, they were cut out of opportunities geared toward large institutions and were ineligible for funding meant for small organizations. Ultimately, the Afro Center couldn't survive, and yet it has had a lasting impact. We planted the seed. By the time they knew who we were, we were gone. Jones, meanwhile, is working on an initiative called Blackgate, which will host a library of his personal archive and that of his wife, poet and organizer Soyini Guyton. The two have collaborated on projects together, such as the founding of Frogtown Farms, an urban farm and community space in St. Paul. The plan is for the archival materials to be accessible to artists and the community. We can't count on the institutions that are supposed to be doing that for us. The story of the Afro Center, the African American Cultural Center, uh, has been erased. I'm attempting now to create a template for the legacies of African American artists. I don't want to be forgotten and I don't want all the folks and many more folks from my community that contributed to my well-being, I want their stories told. And I want them told over and over, and I want them told loudly. Other folks have sought to take up where the African American Cultural Center left off. One of those people is Tina Burnside, co-founder of the Minnesota African American Heritage Museum and Gallery, located in North Minneapolis. A journalist turned lawyer, Burnside's involvement in the museum began when she interviewed black community members about their family heirlooms. Then I was having a history harvest where um, members from the community would come in and they would bring items from their homes and I would take a picture of it and interview them because a lot of the stories of African-American history is in the stories that people pass down from generation to generation or from artifacts that they have in their home. They're usually not in museums. A woman named Coventry Collins came to one of the events. After I interviewed her, she said, oh, I'm trying to start a museum would you like to be involved? And I said, oh, sure, I'll help. We opened up the doors in September of 2018 and 200 people showed up. So that really showed that there was an interest in having a museum dedicated to Black history, art, and culture. Putting the plan for the museum together, Burnside and Collins looked back at what had been done before. 
the African-American Cultural Center back in the, the 70s, they did like history, they did art, they did culture. And that's kind of like what we're doing here also, the full spectrum of, you know, art and culture. For Burnside, the legacy of arts created for Black Minnesotans is a crucial part of the knowledge anyone here needs to know. Black artists have contributed a lot to the the overall development of arts in America and arts in Minnesota. And, you know, their voices and their stories and their works should be included and should be preserved and documented. For KFAI, I'm Sheila Regan. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Mini Culture Podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensula. New episodes coming soon, so subscribe to Mini Culture wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening.